one of the things that I observe with these children, with these families, is that they're very patterned. They do the same stuff in the same way over and over again. And what's interesting to me as a psychologist is if I can change even one small element of that pattern or that dance, I change the entire dance. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I am really excited today to be talking to clinical psychologist Andrew Fuller out of Australia, and we're going to talk about resolving tricky behaviors, a very, very good topic for our listeners here of parents of kids with ADHD. Thanks for being here and sharing some of your time with us, Andrew. Will you start by introducing yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do? G'day. Hi, I'm Andrew Fuller. I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, I started out my work in psychiatric crisis teams, watching people who are in darkest hours of their lives and really trying to think about how to stop people getting to those points in their life. And so uh, that then led me to really thinking about how to work with young people differently in order to create greater change in their lives and more resilient outcomes for them. So it's been an exciting journey. Absolutely. Yeah, and such good work. So needed. Let's talk, I think, first about defining what you mean by tricky behaviors. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them around, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So so I guess every, everybody can be a bit tricky at times. That's, that's, let's face it. So uh, however, there are people and kids particularly who are perennially tricky. And so I often think about uh, particularly young people at, a bit like belly buttons, Penny. That basically there there are the innies and the outies. You know that there are mm-hmm. there are kids that basically are the innies, and nobody really knows they're tricky. They're kind of having all this distress on the inside, and nobody really knows what's going on for them. And then there's the outies, and everybody knows. Everybody knows. Yes. So it's always a drama, and uh, they're both lovely sorts of kids, and they've both got their strengths, but. Um, they really are people who can drive parents a bit witless, I think, at times, <laughs> and teachers as well, to be honest, and sometimes mm-hmm. themselves. So uh, they're the ones that I love to work with. Yeah. And really, kids with ADHD can be either one, innies or outies, depending on the right. sort of constellation of symptoms that they have. So I know you talk in your in your book and in your work about the misconception that people usually have in dealing with tricky behaviors. Do you want to tell us what that number one misconception is? The number one misconception is that these kids are necessarily troubled. And I think it's a really interesting one Mm. to think about that while certainly we have a realm of behaviors that we find acceptable and unacceptable, these are young people who've learned or acquire different ways of coping with the world. And often it's very adaptive what they've done. And so when you sit down and talk to them and figure out what's really going on for them, they have quite a strong coping mechanism for the world. 
Now, whether the world has quite a strong coping mechanism for them can be a different matter, but for them, they are strong, resilient young people. They're people who are ready to survive and thrive in the world. And so one of the things we have to help them to do is to do that in ways that other people are going to appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big piece of what I talk about with parents of kids with ADHD is that we have to figure out their way of moving through the world, what their experience is like, their strengths and weaknesses, and build off of that. Um, Sometimes they don't fit, but they don't need to fit either. Yeah, I think that's right, Penny. I think that we live in a world that is more and more aware of neurodiversity. And we often think about neurodiversity as if it's about this special group of people, but actually we're all neurodiverse. We all have different brains. And so the need for us to think more richly and more deeply about how to bring out the potential that every child, I think, is something that uh, schools and certainly parents have to do more of to really bring to the fore their kids' great lives. Yeah, I love that you said we're all neurodiverse because we really do all have our own set of strengths and weaknesses. No one's perfect. And and it's a really, really powerful message for our kids who are different to to have, to know that they're not the only one and we all have different challenges as we go through life. Yeah, so many kids basically label themselves as bad or lazy or worthless mm-hmm. and uh, or not smart. And that's just not true. It's just, uh, in fact, it's a tragedy, really, to see a young person, and I see many of them in my therapy room, who, who think they have no contribution, they have no real smarts about them. And when we basically find their learning strengths, and uh, I do that not through the book, but um, through a website called mylearningstrengths.com that people can go on and have a look at. And um, that's kind of cool. They get a free letter that says, you know, they're really smart or something. And it sort of analyzes their learning strengths. And that really becomes the starting point for them thinking about in what way they're smart, not whether they're smart, but in what way they're smart. Mm, I love that. Such a good resource, too. Um, getting back to tricky behaviors, I know that you say that they often grow up to be the movers and shakers of the world. Why do you say that? Well, these kids have got all the get up and go. They've got, they've got the, they've got the mojo. They've got, they've got the determination. Mm-hmm. So they're young people who've kind of figured out a way of overcoming whatever pitfalls they've had. They're basically going to get their needs met, whatever happens. Now, sometimes that can be destructive, so we've got to be careful about that. But at the same time, they are the young people who will push upon the rule book in life. So they're going to threaten the status quo, as I think the younger generation should always do, by the way. But I think this group of young people are particularly there because they're not going to be content to say, well, just because schooling's always been this way, well, just because family rules have always been this way, I'll just comply. They're going to go, no, to hell with that. I'm going to basically make my own rules. I'm going to set it up in a different way. And, I, you know, I don't know about you, Penny, but I think the world could do with a bit of shaking up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see so many entrepreneurs um, I know here in the United States who have ADHD, they, they're the risk takers, they're the go-getters, they have the energy and the stamina to kind of go after something and build something. And it's, 
it's really amazing. You know, there's so many strengths there within the differences as well. Yes, and sometimes they're blind to them and sometimes their parents become blind to them because, of course, managing them and helping to raise them can be exhausting. There's no doubt about that. And mm-hmm. so um, you can sometimes then lose sight of their strengths along the way, and that's a, that's a great shame, as we've said. So these kids basically have a, an inner fire, an inner genius, I think, that uh, won't be quelled really, um, but it's one that we need to capitalise on. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the chaos of tricky behaviors and what parents can do. You know, we we struggle with kids who are emotionally intense, who struggle with self-regulation, who have way more energy than we do. My son, when he was younger, uh, by, you know, a couple hours into the morning, I was absolutely exhausted because he never stopped, ever stopped. And was always looking for something of interest and something of challenge and something new. Um, He just had that curiosity in addition to that hyperactivity. So it can be completely chaotic and exhausting, but we still have to work on behavior, right? We still have to set boundaries. We still have to help them with what they're struggling with. So how do we sort of get started with that? What what I, I would imagine it's a mindset first for parents. Yes, thank you, Penny. I think it's a really good question. That's um, after many, many years of research and trial and error, I came up with an acronym called RESOLVE. And RESOLVE really is the system that I try to work with parents to go through because basically we need to have some structure to the way that we approach these kids. Their, their drama, their dramatics, their challenges can be so great that they wear down their parents. And so unless there's a structure to keep in mind, you end up being very erratic in your parenting. And, of course, these kids don't respond to that kind of unpredictability very well. It can be dramatic, but it's not going to be productive. And so resolve, the first part of it is basically to respond with respect. And really that's about trying to help parents to remain with that fine art of equanimity. So rather than waiting until you feel upset or angry or irritated, you're trying to be front-footed about it and to respond respectfully. And I suppose the point here is that we can't model alternative ways of behaving if we're modelling bad behaviour. So clearly it's being almost hyper-respectful about issues. Now, that response is interesting to think about because there's a couple of things in it. Partly it's about owning that we have a problem. So rather than you have a problem, we have a problem. So I I call it drop the Y. So drop the Y from your and you end up with our. So basically it's Mm. our problem. And the other thing I think is important to think about here, and it's really important, is that you don't have to engage in every battle that you're invited to as a parent. Yes. Now, these kids are so dynamic, they're going to offer all sorts of challenges to your parenting. And I think it's important to say, well, okay, yes, yes, under normal circumstances, a good parent, in, 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 in quotation marks, kind of, would be basically responding to all of this stuff. But simply, yes, that's not possible. And so you've got to then think strategically about which parts I can calmly respond to and which times it's not worth responding at all. So some things have to have to be almost ignored to some extent. 
Yeah. So it's not easy to do because, you know, I think that kids have more energy to put into any battle than any adult ever does. And so if you're not strategic in what's truly important, you'll just wear yourself ragged and that's no, no use to anybody. Yeah. The second part of resolve is engage, and that's basically being prepared to rather than wait, because, of course, these kids are good at building up a level of energy in the family where they're irresistibly demanding attention. So rather than waiting for them to demand your attention, you have to be prepared to be on the front foot and engage. What's going on for you? What's happening here? What's And trying to work out basically what's going on at that particular point so that rather than allowing them, because they can repeatedly go on and on and on about a particular issue and rather than waiting to build up the, so the, the message for them becomes that I need to become almost like a nagger and basically go at you with, until basically I get your attention. So in this situation, what we're trying to do is be much more front-footed Proactive. Proactive, that's right. So respond with respect and then engage. And the next part is basically seeking understanding. Now, this is a really important part of it because, of course, one of the things that we want to do in a family, in any family, but in families with these children especially, is to make misbehaviour the abnormal state, not the normal state. Because if it's the normal state, of course, the family is held to live in, right? And so it's got to be the abnormal state. And what that requires in a family is a shift in language. And the shift in language is from why to what. Now, of course, we'll all still use the word why. But when we use the word why a lot, it becomes a bit interrogative. Why'd you do that? Why aren't you ready on time? Why'd you hit your sister? And so on, right? And Okay, we'll all do some of that. But instead of doing that, sometimes we want to stop and say to a child, what's going on for you? What's happening? Are you okay? What's happening? You're not normally like this. What's going on for you? And then I use the acronym HALTS, which I'm sure you've come across. That basically, are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? Are you stressed? And so just going through and asking a child, are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, or even just thinking it to yourself? So even if you don't ask your child, basically gives you a more considered response. Mm-hmm. So what's going on behind the behaviour that might be causing this disruption? Yeah, those unmet needs. Yeah, that's right. And because these are, these are young people that often have learned to express their distress behaviourally, So they will become antsy and difficult and tricky and all of that kind of stuff. But basically what's on behind it is one of those unmet needs. So respond with respect, engage, seek understanding, and observe feelings. It's interesting when we deal with people, and I learned this when I was in psychiatric teams, that there's sort of, there are peaks and valleys to any distress. So there's there's times, of course, when things are, highly energized and then basically it'll start to lower down before it it erupts again and so just watching the pattern of of young people as they go through that and anyone who's ever parented a child will basically watch a child sometimes very upset 
and then they'll start to calm down. And then just as they start to calm down, unless we intervene, they'll rev themselves up again. They'll kind of, and they'll, they'll become kind of frenzied again. And so those valleys between the peaks are the times when we can maybe just move a bit or we can just do something different. So we break out the pattern. So one of the things that I observe with these children, with these families, is that they're very patterned. They do the same stuff in the same way over and over again. And what's interesting to me as a psychologist is if I can change even one small element of that pattern or that dance, I change the entire dance. And so it's just then thinking about, okay, well, maybe normally we get close and we're in one another's face and we're kind of having an eye-to-eye kind of dispute. Maybe what I should just do is back off and grab something else, or maybe I should offer them some water or a snack or something in the meantime uh, in the, that valley. So you're basically getting a change in situation. Yeah, that's so important. Oh, yeah. And so, you, I mean, the person in any situation who has the most power is the person with the most options. And so the person who want to have the most options at the moment is the parent because the parent can regulate the child. And so if the parent doesn't have more options than the child, we're in big trouble, right? So that means right. you've got to extend your, broad, your broaden your range of options. And that might be really simple. It could be going into the kitchen and grabbing something, or I've got to basically uh, pick up something here, or I need to move in a different way. So it doesn't have to be major, but it's got to be some option that you have. Now, the next part is to lower the tone. And this is a really intricate part of it, but it's worth being aware of because, of course, behind much of the behaviour, the tricky behaviours of kids, isn't conscious thought. What lies behind tricky behaviours are the neurochemicals washing around between the synaptic openings and the brain. And so starting to be able to think about neurochemistry as a parent, which sounds like a bit of a reach, but it actually makes sense when we think about it, Yes. makes an incredible difference. And so there are four major neurochemicals that I try to help parents to understand and think about. And there are two that we would like more of, and there are two that we would like less of, generally speaking. The first one is dopamine. And dopamine, of course, is the neurochemical responsible for motivation. And so it's the party animal of the neurochemical world. <laughs> and so we like dopamine because we feel kind of pumped up and ready to go and so on. And so basically what we want to try and do is have a bit more of that generally. Now, obviously, some dramatic kids can be really pumped up by computer games. So we need to find other ways for them to be pumped up as well. Uh, so essentially things that basically help dopamine to increase uh, feedback, uh, rewards, uh, recognition, acknowledgement, but particularly rhythmic repetitive movements. So sports like handball, downball, volleyball, percussion, swimming, macarena, dancing, all that rhythmic stuff yeah. increases dopamine, which is why it's not bad for these kids long-term to learn a fairly percussive instrument. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a musical career, then basically drumming is not a bad place to begin because yeah. it really drives some of that energy, right? Uh, the two that, so I'll go to the two that we don't want so much of and then I'll come back to the other one that I, we want more of. 
Uh, the two that we don't want so much of are adrenaline. Now, adrenaline basically makes kids ratty, chatty, and scatty. I'm just trying to <laughs> They're motor mouths, right? And they're just basically, they run off at the mouth and they're just basically, it's like a red cordial high, you know? And essentially what brings that down is repetition and ritual in families. Which part of it don't you understand? I've got a whole life to help this. It's going to be fine. But either eventually, Penny, it's going to be all right. And this is what we're going to do now, you know? It's almost like that very kind of placid, matter-of-fact low drama type of parenting that basically is highly predictable. The yeah. other thing that brings cortisol down is drinking water so that we know that basically if I was to give you a glass of water now and then measure your blood level of cortisol in 10 minutes' time, it would decrease. So lots of kids are dehydrated and just bringing their water level up will basically calm them. Uh, essentially, of course, as well as adrenaline, is cortisol. Now, cortisol acts slightly differently. Cortisol is damaging for your immune system, so you don't want the parents to be too, too uh, full of cortisol because they'll get sick. But at the right. same time, you want when you have cortisol, often the language functioning of children is lowered, so they become monosyllabic. They become basically sullen. They become harder to engage over anything. So sometimes when you see a, a young person who's high on cortisol, they just can't really express their thoughts. Their memory becomes interfered with, so they, they're not really coherent in terms of what they're doing. And again, it's about safety. This is a time when really it's great to come back to that what question, what's going on for you, what's going on? And even though they can't describe it, at times, you might be able to go your best guess. I think you need a snack now or you need something. You need some time in with me. So generally speaking, yeah. of course, time in is much more powerful than time out. Absolutely. The last one is serotonin, the most powerful antidepressant, of course, known to humankind. And uh, that's, that's increased by feedback. It's acknowledgement, recognition, humour, praise. All that kind of stuff basically helps kids to, and challenges, of course, as well. So trying to use that mix a little bit in terms of thinking about what I can do to change this situation is powerful. Sometimes giving your kids a challenge, which, of course, okay, computer games is an easy way of getting that challenge, but sometimes it's good to sometimes have a discussion where there's a challenge about, well, I bet you can't remember the time that we did such and such. Is surprisingly effective. Sometimes changing the lighting in the room can also be quite powerful. Wow. These are just small things that just make quite, I mean, it's interesting with these young people how patterned they are so that small differences in the parenting routine will then make major magnitude shifts is what I find. And that's so encouraging for parents too, to know that there are little things that we can do that will make a powerful impact. Yeah, thank you. I think that the, just understanding that behind the behaviour, because, of course, there's always a, a risk, isn't there, to take the behaviour personally as an attack mm -hmm. on you, but to realise that really it's not about conscious thinking, it's about neurochemistry, and that's driving most of the behaviour, helps you then to free yourself from feeling attacked and basically start to think, how can I change this for this, this child? How can I make it more familiar for them to be in a calmer, more centred state? 
Yeah, that's that's definitely the way that I stay calm as I learn to stop taking it personally. It's not personal. If if we look at the intention of our kids when there's intense behavior, tricky behavior, we can see that more often than not, they're not intending to hurt us. They're not intending to cause harm. They're just really having a hard time in that moment. And then, you know, that helps us to be able to understand and stay calm. And then we're lending them our calm. We're modeling how to remain calm when something is tricky and difficult. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Penny, that basically what we know is in the in the prefrontal cortex, there are two major decision-making centers. The one sort of just between your eyes or behind there called your orbital prefrontal cortex. And that kind of is the part of your brain that's trying to work out, can I do it or can't I do it? Is it go or is it stop? Up in the upper part of your forehead or behind there is a part of your brain called your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that weighs things up. Can I do this? Or what's, what's the effect of that if I do that? Now, with these sorts of tricky kids, the orbital prefrontal cortex is often more emphasized than the dorsolateral. So the can I do it or not, is much more powerful than the weighing up stuff, right? right? In the long term, we want to get them to be able to weigh stuff up, but we can't get there unless we get to that first point. So because of that, we realise that essentially kids are often wanting to know, can I do it or can't I do it? And so there's a tendency then to parent them and say, stop that, don't do that. And that's good except that because these are young people who don't know what else to do, unless we say, instead of doing that, do this, even if they don't do it, it's starting to model what's the alternative behaviours. So that we need to value that, which is the V in resolve. We need to start to increase their repertoire. Because long-term, we don't want to always be there doing this. We want to essentially have them with a broader bandwidth of behaviours to engage in. And the last part, of course, is to empower because the long-term aim of managing the behaviour of these young people is not for us to manage their behaviour, but for them to manage their behaviour. And so helping them to slowly learn how to, and it will be gradual, I mean, you can't expect a young person to learn this overnight. It's going to take a while. But essentially what you're aiming at is to have a young person who sees misbehaviour as the abnormal state in the family, not the normal state, that basically has a parent who knows how to calm them down or at least not join them in their agitation, and then basically has some skills to help them learn a broader repertoire of behaviours and then learns to help them acquire some of those so that in the future, when the parent's not around necessarily, they've got some skills to draw upon for themselves so they don't draw their, drive their future partners or their work colleagues completely better. Right, right, right. Yeah, this is so, so empowering for parents, this discussion around behavior. And really, it's it's top of mind when you have a kid with ADHD because we're, we're often confounded by the behavior. We don't understand it. Even parents who also have ADHD are often so different from their children who have ADHD. And so, you know, naturally as parents, we're drawing on our own experience and we're drawing on 
what our culture and the families around us are doing in their parenting. And then we get stuck in this place of just really misunderstanding our kids and feeling like we have to change them or fix them to fit, which is absolutely the wrong approach to that. And so, you know, a lot of the work that I do with parents is really diving deep, just as you've described, on behavior and really understanding where it's coming from in order to change our own mindset and our own ways of approaching it as parents. You know, as parents, we're the ones who really have to make the changes. Our kids are who they are, and we need to honor that and then help them to kind of devise a way to move through the world being who they are that also affords them success and happiness. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not for a moment suggesting this is easy. For, no. For one skerrick of a second, I'm not suggesting that because it really does take some thinking through. But because these are high-intensity kids, you can either give them high intensity in terms of anger and drama in the family or you can find alternative ways of engaging them in really highly intense things. So they, they are passionate young people. And so finding their learning strengths and building on that then gives you an entirely different strategy to work on. And I think over the years, having worked with lots of these families, as I know you have as well, Penny, I would say my rule of thumb is if I can get one positive change every six weeks, we're doing really well. Yeah. So you don't try to aim for too much. In fact, if you if you if you aim too big or too broad, you'll run in a puff. So you've really got to be specific and go, what's the one thing I want to shift in the next six weeks and then focus on that bit? And from there, you build it slowly over time. And it yeah. will come. These kids are actually very smart kids. They're very capable, but we've just got to bring it to the fore. Absolutely. Yeah. Let us know where we can get your book. You, I know you have several books, but we're talking mostly about resolving tricky behaviors, right? And, and yeah. here in the U.S., I believe we can get it on Amazon. Yeah, tricky behaviors is just out, and I well, I hope it's in available in all good bookshops, but it's also in Barnes and Noble and Amazon as well. So, uh, and it's written in a way where hopefully you'll get a few laughs as well because. I think we need a few um, as well, along the way. So it's uh, it's sort of seeing some of the situations and plights of other parents. And, of course, because I spend a lot of my time doing many, many parent sessions and parent seminars, we get to discuss some of the really interesting examples of behaviours that families just have to contend with that make them scratch their heads and puzzle and wonder why. But that's why I think... This has got some real-world examples of what goes on for parents in these sorts of child's lives. And it helps us to feel not alone. It can be very isolating to raise a challenging child. You think you're the only one, and you're really not. No, you feel genetically to blame, don't you? At times you think, oh, right. somehow I create this. What was I doing? You know. Um, but that's right. And again, to come back to that earlier point, that we live in a neurodiverse world for a reason. And so these are the young people who really had all the get up and go and the mojo 
to create a shift in the way people do it. And that's not always appreciated in our modern world, but it's an important role nevertheless. Super important. Thank you so much for sharing some of your time and experiences and wisdom with the parents who are listening. Um, Everyone can get a link to Andrew's websites and the books at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 126 for episode 126. Everything will be in the show notes there. And I do hope that you continue to explore his work. Very powerful information for for all of us and really for all kids. You know, when we when we approach parenting with compassion and respect, it's good for all kids. Thanks again for being here, Andrew. I really, really appreciate it. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Penny. It's been a lot for me too. With that, I will end the session and we'll see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.